A podcaster's note. This episode of Where to Begin with Giallo will feature heavy spoilers of the movie Deep Red from 1975. If you've never seen the movie before or you're looking forward to taking part in this series by sending in a review, please pause the show and check out the movie first. However, if you've seen the movie before and you want to continue listening on to the show, please do. Don't say you weren't warned. Unnatural kind of death. Beyond shock. What was that? Beyond horror into total terror. Murder runs wild. Blood runs cold. Deep red. Conjecture is that an act of bloodshed was once committed in that house. running with you. Welcome to a brand new episode of Where to Begin With. In season one, we're looking at the subgenre known as Giallo and taking you through a 10 part series detailing out 10 movies that I think are the quintessential backbones in getting into, understanding, appreciating, and beginning your own journey of discovery into the world of the Giallo. I'm your host Duncan McLeish, welcome, and we are close to the end now, this is episode number 8 of season number 1, which means there are only 2 movies left before we close it out for good, and then come back in the new year with a brand new topic to get our teeth stuck into. We've had a really interesting run thus far, and way back on episode number 1, we picked what I would argue is maybe one of the most important in understanding the subgenre known 
as the Gialli. Of course, we looked at the bird with the crystal plumage. Argento is a pivotal figure in this subgenre, not only taking the ideas put out by predecessors, refining them, modernising them, and putting them into a palatable, sort of consumable medium and format for international audiences, which essentially, you know, puts his career on a rocket, but also at the same time highlights and gives credence to the genre as being something viable for a ton of directors at the time who would follow on in his footsteps. Argento originally did three movies as part of what would be known as the Animal Trilogy. He kicked off with Bird with the Crystal Plumage, we move into Cat and Nine Tails and finished off with Four Flies on Grey Velvet. After that, I think he'd kind of decided he'd done his time. He'd worked on the projects he needed to do to get his name established and he was going to try his hand at something else. Five Nights in Milan was his follow-up. It was a kind of comedy drama of sorts and it performed horribly at the box office. So much so that it was back to the drawing board for a very young Dario and he would return back to the genre, back to the style that he had made so popular. However, in 1975, the heyday of the Jallo was kind of gone. It was starting to be surpassed by an interest in making police procedural movies and doing some stuff that were a bit more creepy and supernatural. So Argento comes back with Deep Red, aka Profondo Rosso in 75, and not only re-establishes his name as one of the most exciting directors in Italy, but one of the most exciting directors working at the time. Deep Red is nothing short of an absolute tour de force, and you could argue at this point, this is where the genre transcends from being a kind of crime caper, whodunit murder mystery to out and out horror. Because as much as we understand the templates, um, the specific hallmarks that what would make a Jallo viewing experience, a black glove killer, the foreign visitor who's trying to remember a detail, and if he can just remember it, he can crack the case. As much as we hold on to these things, we start going into weird territory with this movie, play with logic, play with physics, um, and really go into what can only be described as a head fuck of a movie from start to finish. Deep Red is a movie which is so ballsy, is so confident that it goes out its way to show you the killer in the first five minutes and then very much like our central character trying to remember what it was that he saw or didn't see, the one clue, then shows you at the end what that character saw and by the way it was there all along, it was under your nose and very much like the character trying to struggle through and establish the connections to solve the mystery, you've been doing the same and you might not have known it, it's buried deep in your subconscious. It's a hugely important movie in Argento's career because it, on a lot of levels, sets out the kind of expectations that you're going to have from his work for the next, what, five, six years? You have Daria Nicolodi, who was, at the time, very much a part of uh, Argento's life, uh, his other half, so to speak, who would go on to be mother of his children. You have David Hemmings, who is 
a wonderful character in this one. Kind of campy, um, a bit meek and timid. Not your general leading man, for sure. He plays almost backseat to the brash uh, Nickelodeon character. And this is a movie that not only gives you the incredible you know, visual style, those deep, vibrant colours, the deep reds, so to speak, the imagery of dolls, which is just bizarre, the kind of flashbacks to childhood trauma, which Argento likes to play with. But on top of that, this is the first movie that has a collaboration of Argento and Italian prog rockers Goblin. The score to Deep Red is nothing short of fucking mind-blowing because it understands the vulnerability of the backstory given and plays with those techniques and themes whilst also giving you a heavy dose of 70s prog rock. It just works really well. It's a marriage made in heaven. What's interesting about Deep Red is how unremarkably different it is in terms of its overall plot setup an overall delivery of its killer to something like a bird with a crystal plumage. Argento, when he made that movie, almost made a template of how he felt the genre should run, and as a result, most Argento giallos are kind of retellings or recalibrated versions of that movie, and Deep Red falls into that for sure. What we have is a movie that opens with a psychic doing a reading and as she is reaching out to the further realms beyond the the known existence into the the, the paranormal she realises that someone is in the room watching this particular reading that has murdered before and this is the catalyst, this is the trigger so to speak for our killer to continue murdering because um, the killer feels outed in the room and then kills the psychic and in killing the psychic um, and a rather brutal death which involves a window smash, one of Argento's faves, uh, and a lot of poster red kind of paint blood, which is also one of Argento's faves and showing his love and appreciation for Hammer Horror. Um, our pianist character, jazz pianist Marcus Daly, played by David Hemmings, sees the murder happen and goes into the room of the murder uh, to try and track down the killer and see what happens. And he can't see the killer, the killer manages to escape, but maybe there's a detail he's missed in that. He is obviously involved in the police investigation in a kind of side capacity, you know, they're going to keep coming back to him. And decides, once joined with Gianna, played by Daria Nicolodi, a, a local reporter, that they are going to solve the mystery together. The more he gets involved, the darker things get. It's a weird, twisty, turny movie that has, at times, surreal logic. There's a scene here with a kind of creepy, almost kind of mechanical doll that moves in a way which doesn't make sense, doesn't add anything to the plot, and is never really re kind of recaptured or even explained throughout the movie. But as scenes go, it's it's jaw-droppingly terrifying the first time you see it. There's also the idea of some vicious, absolutely vicious, brutal kills. This is one of these movies, alongside a movie like Torso, for example, where the killer becomes overtly mean. It's a very mean-spirited killer that goes around killing people in pretty horrific ways. Uh, One of my favourites being the drowning of a character in a, a bath of scalding hot water. And then the idea that this character will write a kind of SOS message on steamed tiles that will later be found out by you know steaming up the room and seeing the message. 
And as you're going along, you're tracking down and finding out the backstory, the the kind of building blocks of what has created this killer. It's very, very, very well done. And even up to the end, if you're lucky to guess who the killer is, or if you've been eagle-eyed and sharp at the start and recognised who the killer is, um, that end reveal is still something quite spectacular. It's a character that's not very prominent in it as well. So it's kind of that, you know... The Scooby-Doo scenario of, oh, it was Lightkeeper Bob, who we only saw for one shot at the opening of the cartoon. It's a kind of similar thing to that. And it, it fully explains the character's modus operandi in a way which is a bit eye-rolling, but in a way you kind of have to roll with. And as Argento likes to do with all his movies, that killer's going to die before finding the justice of the police. And they're going to die in a, a pretty horrific way. In the case of this movie, involving a, an elevator and a decapitation, it's wonderfully dark and incredibly fucking ballsy. And that's the, the classic Argento sort of style. Camera work in this movie is jaw-droppingly good. As with most of the Argento movies, he tends to spend a bit more time doing this than he does other bits and bobs. The movie has a, a kind of a wonderful way of kind of twisting and turning in its cinematography, which I think, like I said, with a lot of these things, I think aids to its overall delivery. I think when you have weird and wonderful camera work and Argento's lighting and suspense and mystery and murder, it, it, it's a marriage made in heaven. It's something that you want to just spend more time watching because you're going to get involved, dragged into it. The director of photography on this movie was Luigi Cavillier, um, a guy who worked quite a lot in the time frame and a lot of projects and did some incredible work with kind of like amazing directors, you know, like people that you would just expect to, it was like a who's who of phenomenal stuff. Uh, one of the ones that I think is kind of impressive and you should check out is Paul Morrissey's Flesh for Frankenstein. Um, it's a movie that is a woefully underseen but has an incredible performance by Udo Kier. Um, it's, it's one of those ones where it's, it's surprisingly weird and bizarre and it, it goes to show some you know great craft behind the camera as well as Blood for Dracula. But he would go on and, you know, do the aforementioned um, Five Days in Milan or Five Days, um, which was Argento's previous project, and continue that work throughout. So that's a, a collaboration that Argento obviously felt comfortable with. I can only imagine what the conversations between the two of them on shot composition might be like, but it delivers a, you know, a stunningly strong, vibrant visual style, which is, is the... I mean, if you speak to any horror film fan or any, you know, critic, like an actual academic, and the name Argento comes up, most of the time it's about visual style and camera work. And I think it's always because Argento surrounded himself with interesting filmmakers that you get that. So on on top of all the things that we have here... We were talking about that ballsy reveal. At the beginning of this movie, when uh, David Hemmings sees the killer kill someone from a window in a, a, in a building or an apartment opposite where he is, you know, just hanging out, he rushes up and enters the room and the killer's gone. But as he's walking along, if you actually track the camera slowly, he's looking at pictures on the wall and one of the pictures at the end of the movie turns out to be a mirror and you actually see the killer in that mirror. 
Now, what was wonderful about this is I imagine audiences at the time thought, well, well, you can do that. Because a lot of these movies change details in the flashback in a way which is kind of sneaky. You know, the killer was always there, you just didn't see him. Um, Argento actually does that. And if you are the sort of person that picks up on every minute detail, chances are you probably knew who the killer was from that moment. It was just a case of waiting until we caught them. Um, but in this movie, most of the time you're not paying attention. It's done so quickly in a manner where your eyes do catch it, you just can't comprehend it. And that's I like that as a clever device because that's essentially where... David Hemming's character is as well, as he moved so quickly, took in all this detail, but just it didn't resonate with exactly what he saw at the time. So it's a smart reveal, and I would say Argento never did that again, actually. He would, if anything, go back down the the mystery technique for his giallos moving forward, in a way which I enjoyed. Sometimes actually just showing you who the killer is. If you think of a, a kind of early 90s movie like Trauma, for example, you know who the killer is in that movie. Um, pretty much from early on in the movie and you're just following it to the end but here there's still an air of mystique there's that mystery, there's a trying to get to the bottom of it sort of scenario a movie like Tenebrae which comes a couple of years later uh, it's early 80s for Tenebrae, 82 Tenebrae has a great example of you know, the, the kind of false reveal you think you know who the killer is, you get the evidence that's who the killer is but actually we are. We have another killer who's just doing the copycat style in the background, and I love that. I love the fact that Argento is bold enough to play with those ideas. Deep Red on any given day, when you ask an Argento fan what their favourite movie is, uh, Deep Red any given day could top the list, and that's above such titles as Suspiria, Bird with the Crystal Plumage, or even Tenebrae. It's the first kind of proper Argento horror movie and sets out his penchant for, like, violence and nastiness, uh, whilst against the backdrop of beautiful cinematography and incredible soundtracks. It's the one that supplants him as a future master of horror, and after this movie he would go on and make Suspiria, once again abandoning the giallo subgenre for something a bit more ethereal, a bit more witchy, a bit more uh, supernatural. Um... It's interesting, he always comes back to Giallo's when things don't do well, so he did Inferno after Suspiria in 1980, and Inferno's an incredible movie, but a lot of people just didn't like the, the, the movie itself, or didn't capture it, or maybe it critically bashed as being a bit devoid of plot, and what does he come back with? Tenebrae, which I would argue in any given day might be his best fucking movie, so it's always great to see that one. Deep Red is a wonderful movie and if you've never seen it before uh, or listened to this show without seeing it, I feel sorry for you. Uh, I really wish you'd watch these movies before coming through the reviews because there is something kind of great about sitting through the the process and getting to the end. Now there are many different cuts of this movie. There's the international cut which is a lot shorter, it's about an hour and a half long and then you've got the Italian cut itself which is about two hours long and both play with the way characters are portrayed in that one in an interesting way. Interestingly enough, the Italian one has a bit more humour to it, it's a bit more relaxed, um, and I think that works better. I'm a big proponent of the the old uh, Italian cut, whereas the American one really does focus down on the horror. It cuts out a lot of the nonsense, a lot of the, the banter between Nickelodeon's character and Hemming's character, and really focuses on the kills 
And if you fancy something a bit shorter, a bit snappier and a bit right to the point, then that is a cut that you should definitely go for. So there we go. That was Deep Red. Phenomenal bit of cinema, if you ask me. It's one of the standout Italian horror movies of the 70s. And Argento does it almost as a kind of way to get back on track. And that's what blows my mind. A lot of directors, when they have that misstep, really question their ability to do things. And Argento goes right back on that horse and delivers greatness, delivers excellence in a package which is, oh my God, I can watch a movie on loop and never tire of it. I'm really interested to see what you guys make of it and we'll be giving you details of how to submit your review in and what the next movie should be that we'll be covering on this one. But we have some unfinished business to get to. The unfinished business is, of course, your reviews for last month's movie. We covered The Short Night of Glass Dolls from 1972 and you guys submitted some reviews in. So the usual suspects here, we've got Kate and we've got David Garrett Jr. submitting reviews in. So let's get to that and find out what Kate made of The Short Night of Glass Dolls. Hey, Duncan and Teapots Collective listeners. Um, it's Kate Pollock here. Uh, it's my review of Short Night of Glass Dolls. Um, before I get on with that, as always, hope everyone is keeping safe and healthy. Um, so, yeah, this was my first watch. I ended up actually buying it on Blu-ray last minute as the copy I had um, <clears throat> obtained didn't have fucking subtitles. Um, I couldn't find it anywhere on Prime or, or Arrow or anything. So, uh, so yeah, um, I had to sort of dash out last minute and buy it. But blessings in disguise and all that really glad it's part of my collection now because spoiler i really really fucking like this movie um so you know there is a big bit that i want to talk about um there's some chunky but slightly smaller bits i want to talk about um but then there's a few other bits which i'm going to talk about now so um firstly the acting was superb um across the board really everyone was great um but i just want to take a moment can we just acknowledge the dreaminess of our main protagonist gregory moore played by i want to say it's pronounced jean sorrel uh yeah i mean jesus his eyes alone are mystical i swear to god um and just that will come in in later there's sort of not only are his eyes just you could fall into them um but actually um i think they do play um quite an interesting part of this movie um i'll talk about that in a sec um also someone who i really like despite his occasional chauvinistic attitudes um is Jacques. Um, he just had such a swag about him. Um, he was a real delight on uh, to watch on screen, um, I'd say, the odd comment aside. Um, and yeah, just, uh, I just really enjoyed him and his performance. Um, his outfits as well, his whole kind of, yeah, his, his suits, his hair, his beard. Um, yeah, just really appreciated that um and yeah one one thing though yeah one thing though i didn't appreciate was that the killer obviously just had absolutely no respect for italian designer wear um when he shoved his body into that bin just for shame honestly um but yeah just talking about the costumes um they were wonderful they were really solid throughout both men and women this is really wonderful array of colors and fabrics and yeah i was into it um so one of the things that i want to talk about particularly um is the cinematography um 
the backdrop of the city is just is, is just gorgeous um, and although a more muted palette is used you're still treated to these beautiful landscapes and architecture um, you do have this overall kind of grey filter but despite that you do get these sort of occasional flashes of colour you know red bowls a yellow dress some scarlet blood spatter um, which when used they really pop out and contrast well and I just thought it was very effective um, other things of note with cinematography are so basically what we have is we have our main guy he um has somehow got into this position where he cannot move he's paralyzed right but he actually comes off as dead he doesn't have a heartbeat there's nothing like that um so yeah and he all the while is sort of being treated by these doctors who one of them does think he might still be able to be recovered um, because his body temperature hasn't dropped right um but at the same time it's kind of just delaying the inevitable autopsy that's going to happen so he's hurriedly not only trying to somehow communicate to them that he's still alive but also trying to remember the series of events that have happened beforehand building up to the current predicament that he is in so um so yeah so you have these kind of like two timelines going on um and we have um, these flashbacks um, but before these flashbacks we have these kind of little snippets of memory um, these little kind of like flashes of images which are cut together so quickly you know you you literally blink and you miss them um, and they're like these jigsaw pieces to this sort of this big puzzle that we're trying to put together alongside Gregory um, and you know they don't quite fit anywhere on their own but as the scene plays out we start to sort of see more and more of what's happening um, I think it's just a really great technique and creates this cool sense of mystery and intrigue um, which yeah um, I really appreciated um, there's this moment where as well so the flashback scenes there's a second mystery kind of going on with what's happened to his girlfriend Mira she's just sort of up and vanished and um he does eventually find her inside a fridge um and again she very much looks dead but we have the door of the fridge sort of slowly open out um the sort of camera stays on it and what it reveals is her kind of hunched over in this fridge naked um but the first thing that we see is her really is her eyes looking up with this very haunted look and it's just it's so creepy um i really found that moment to be very impactful um especially as we realize that she's actually still alive um in fact actually i just want to take a, a second to mention just how there's actually not a a lot of gore in this movie at all but what we get in return are all these really chilling concepts and ideas so you know at the end of the movie when I kind of clocked that there wasn't a lot of kills and things like that um, I realised that I hadn't actually noticed and I didn't really mind because um, you know this unsettling feeling that you get um, in a, on a lot of these occasions sort of more than made up for it um, anyway I want to go back to the eye thing so um, eyes seem to be like a real thing in this movie lots of close-ups or techniques to use to highlight them um, and not only is this very unnerving um, as these people mainly Gregory but also Mira they, they look dead but they aren't and it's really interesting as um, you know eyes are often sort of said to be the windows of the soul and thereby kind of like being the doorway to someone's life force you know if if you believe in such things. Um, so we're constantly being reminded that, you know, this person is alive. And saying before about, um, you know, Jean Sorel's um, sort of crystal blue eyes, um, they really highlight this. I mean, they basically sparkle. Um, so 
you know, we have that, but we also know that he's about to be declared dead and then cut open as part of an autopsy. But he can hear and see and feel everything around him. So that concept to me is absolutely terrifying. And, you know, through this excellent camera work and cinematography, it's just a constant throughout the film. And again, very effective. Second thing I want to talk about is um, is the score. Um, this has been done by the legendary Ennio Morricone. Um, you know, needs no introduction. And it's, it's awesome. It, you know, it's absolutely stunning, really. Um, in last month's review, I said that that was my favourite score so far in the series. But honestly, this may well have beaten it or at least come level to it. Um, it's beautiful. It's haunting. You've got the strings, the piano. You've got, you know, the thumping heartbeat used as part of it. And you've got these off-kilter voices used to kind of create this distorted dreamlike feel. Um, it's used throughout the movie. And, and later we sort of realise that it echoes the ritualistic sounds made by Club 99, this sort of weird cult antagonist um, sort of thing. Um, yeah, it's, it's fantastic um you know there's this one scene where as well where like classical music is being played live and oh my gosh it's just it's stunning Duncan anyone um if anyone knows um what that piece is where I can find it hit a sister up because I couldn't identify it anywhere but I would just I'd love to sit and listen to it uh you know properly um one other quick thing as well before i move on to the main bit i want to talk about it's just it's just a general observation but um yeah the pacing was excellent really suspenseful all the way through um it wastes no time in getting to the mystery um and yeah the runtime 95 minutes in and out i just really appreciated it yeah um so let's get to the main event of discussion that ending i'm just gonna take a quick swig of water one sec Sorry about that. Uh, But yeah, the ending. So um, like last month's, another surprise ending. Another ending that kind of goes out the outside of the normal kind of mystery thriller giallo type ending where the guy discovers the killer and saves the day. Um, And yeah, like last month, another ending that is bleak as fuck. <laughs> so, you know, all the way along, you've kind of been following Gregory across these two timelines, the one where he's walking and talking, trying to find his missing girlfriend, and then the other one where he's essentially a living corpse, <laughs> trying to remember what's happened, um, you know, beforehand. Um, you know, and that's the that's the walking and talking bit. Um, on a side note as well, I um, meant to mention it earlier, but I really actually found um, that that method to be really interesting and such an original way of telling the story so yeah kudos for that um anyway so yeah as i said we've followed him alongside throughout the whole movie we've gone through these ups and downs followed these red herrings trying to work out the mystery and put the jigsaw pieces together um with with gregory but ultimately it's too late when he finally remembers and when we kind of finally put it all together he's already on the autopsy table about to be cut up now there are several aspects of this that are just horrific in this moment one he remembers what happens and in that moment we have the cult leaders who have done this to him they've they've given him this drug that's paralyzed him and they are in the auditorium looking down at him in plain sight in front of about 50 maybe 100 people you know the balls on them and they're looking at him and he's looking at them and motherfuckers, I swear to God, they smirk. I mean, they know that he knows who they are and they know what's about to happen to him and they smirk. Oh, fucking brutal. Number two, we've got 
the drugs that are keeping him paralyzed they're starting to wear off at this point and he starts to move and he also his heartbeat starts up again but no one can really hear that so you know the hand movement it's only his fingers you know it's only a little bit but still we're feeling excited by this point he's going to make it the final moment he's going to make his movements known and he's going to declare the real murderers for the sex cultist killers that they are no it's Romeo and Juliet all over again with no one noticing the movements in time except the doctor who turns out to be Professor Carting one of said sex cultist killers and he holds his fucking arm down so no one can see and he keeps it there while he proceeds to jab his scalpel into Gregory's heart killing him dead what the fuck (laughs) and you know and We've, we've, we've got this sort of shot of his hand kind of like struggling against the doctor and then all of a sudden it goes limp and we realise that he's dead and honestly he's just another fucking tomato to the doctor which, sorry, it relates to a scene before which I won't go into but if you've seen it you know what I mean but yeah, basically and, you know, on top of that straight afterwards we're sort of treated to this blood-curdling scream from his colleague and occasional lover who's for some reason, watching. So yeah, we have this shocking death, this blood-curdling scream, and then that's credit, guys. That's it. Fuck's sake. Uh, And then, yeah, lastly, number three, what this all means is nothing. There is no denouement to this tale, no satisfying roundup of conclusions. Gregory is murdered, the murders of Mira, his girlfriend, and Jacques, his colleague and friend, are pinned on him, and he will never, li- very li- unlikely anyway, will never have his innocent proven. The end. <laughs> Honestly, okay, so for me, it's not as horrific as the missed ending, but it has that same level of bleakness. Uh, so bleakness, you know, nothing matters. You went through all of that, and we're still going to nail your heart and expectations to the wall. No one survives. It's all for nothing. And yet, here's the thing. Weirdly, this is what I love most about it. As said earlier, I've come to notice through other Jello titles that I've watched within this series and also outside of the series um, that, you know, these mysteries, they often have like a happy ending where the main guy finds the killer and he gets his dues, you know, and all of that. So the fact that none of this happens here, again, like last month's movie, movie, sorry. Um, Yeah, it's really cool. And in my opinion, bullshit, you know what I mean? Like that takes balls. Um, You know, especially when you consider that this is the director's first fucking movie in a genre that by this point, 1971, is pretty established. You've got the likes of Mario Bava and Argento steering the helm at this point. So for him to come in and essentially tear up the rule book... I mean, fair fucking play, you know? I mean, whatever else you might think of this movie, you've got to respect that, surely, you know? Yeah, I do anyway. So, um, my only kind of drawbacks, I mean, it's kind of just annoyances more than anything. It's, you know, really not a big deal, but fuck it. So, my only kind of thing really is um, the character of Jessica. Um, She's just so obvious in her agenda. She's kind of disrespectful and clingy. I just felt her to be a bit of a shitty character. I mean, unless there's something there that I missed about her. I mean, it's possible I had the subtitles on and I was kind of looking up and down to make my notes. Um, But yeah, in my opinion, she just kind of needed to get over it and move on. (laughs) Um, And as I said before, um, you know, Jacques sort of made some kind of chauvinistic comments earlier, which... I, you know, I, yeah, I get it. It's, it's the genre and stuff, but it still kind of grates on me a little bit. 
but I understand it's a product of its time and stuff. So, you know, I let it pass. Um, so yeah, um, in a plot twist, unlike this movie that is shocking to no one, I really fucking like this movie. In fact, I loved it and it's a five out of five from me. Um, so yeah, dead glad to have it in my collection. Dead glad to have watched it. So yeah, thanks Duncan for this movie selection, um, for this month, sorry, movie selection. Uh, very excited for next month also. And as always, looking forward to hearing everybody else's thoughts. Thanks very much, guys. Bye. Thanks very much to Kate for sending in that review. Always great to hear from you. Always excited to hear when like a pick really hits the mark, you know, because it's, it's difficult with these sort of movies because there is so much to get into and there are so many of them. And at times it feels obvious to go with some of the bigger titles, you know, some of the, the more mainstay ones. And there are lots of interesting conversations about whether or not this movie actually merits being a giallo because of its its sidesteps to so many parts of the genre. But I'm really glad that you dug it. Uh, it's one of those ones where um, I came later to this movie as well. And every viewing, I just find something more captivating, mostly Jean Sorel's eyes because he is fucking dreamy. Right, our second and final review for Short Night at Glass Dolls comes in from our good buddy David Garrett Jr. who says... Hello Duncan and Teapots Collective listeners, David Garrett Jr. here back again for Where to Begin with Giallo here on the Teapots Collective. This month's selection was... Short Night of Glass Dolls, and to be honest, this is one that I don't really think I've heard a whole lot about outside of what you had said about it, Duncan, is I believe this, if my memory serves right, was covered on the Summer Challenge series for the 70s, and then I feel like you did an episode on this as well where it was a little bit more in-depth, but I don't think I listened to it because you said there was kind of heavy spoilers, so I did not want to kind of, you know, listen to anything like that and have it ruined before I got a chance to actually watching this. Now, this movie has some interesting aspects to it. What I like here is that we kind of get your normal giallo-type trope here where we have, a, in this case, a reporter that is defying the police to find out what happened to his missing girlfriend. Now, this reporter is Gregory Moore, who is Gene Sorrell. Now, what I like about this, though, is the police don't want him to investigate anything because he's an American that is living in Prague and they just don't really trust the media in general, which is kind of hard to blame them because I believe at this time they were probably communist. Because I know that there's a few times where Greg is talking about getting his girlfriend out of these countries, and I believe her name is Mira Sabova, and she is Barbara Bach. Now, what I like about this, though, as I was saying, is despite what the police tell him to do, he decides that he's going to go ahead and investigate her disappearance. Now, what's strange is that all of her clothes are still there, but... She is nowhere to be found, and there's also things like her passport and all of her money. And as he starts to look into her disappearance, he realizes that there is a series of them that are very similar where their stuff is left behind, but they aren't to be found. And everybody that is involved with them seems to be scared to talk about it. But an added element to this one that makes it different, kind of set it apart, is the fact that we are playing everything back over inside the head of Gregory as he is laying in kind of a suspended animation. And he is actually at the morgue where they're trying to figure out what's going to happen with him next. And his friend Yvonne is one of the people that is there to kind of run some tests on him. Because the weird thing is that rigor mortis hasn't set in on him and he's still pretty warm. He's trying to play everything back in his head to figure out what got him here and to see if he can sort of 
let the doctors know that he is still alive because at this moment all we're getting is his thoughts and then we're seeing events play back through and we actually get a cool little thing here is that we get a short little montage every time we go back into the past to put the events together where it's almost like we're getting brief images of what we're going to end up seeing here after that now i really think that it's kind of a cool thing to do is have the normal giallo tropes here but we're also doing a little bit more with some of the things that we get in between there i also think the acting is really good Sorella's interesting is that as I was saying, he we get introduced to him that he's dead, and then listening to his thoughts about his plate that got my anxiety going a lot, to be honest. And this actually reminds me of a Stephen King story that I know was adapted into a like short little film for the Nightmares and Dreamscapes TV special. And I wouldn't be surprised if he had watched this movie before, you know, penning that short story that he did. But his has an explanation that we actually are given, where this one, there's a possibility that a cult might be behind some of these things. Now, hearing him consider giving up at some points is pretty heartbreaking as well. And then we also have his friend of Jessica. The actress that played her was pretty solid in her role. Now, she is biased that she loves him, and she wants him to give up looking for Mira. And I thought that did end up working. I also like the character of Jack, as Adorf plays him as the character. And he is just so funny because he's always drinking. And he might be, you know, kind of a patsy in what gets... Greg out of the, his apartment and leaves his girlfriend alone and he kind of feels guilty so he's helping him here. Now what is interesting here about the effects is that we really don't get a whole lot of them. What we get, get are practical and I would say that's mostly just the medical science of the doctors trying to figure out if Gregory is still alive or not. And then on top of that though, I would say most of the rest of this movie is pretty psychological of things that are happening. Now we do, as I said, get some montage sequences that are pretty solid for the cinematography aspect of it there. And then what I also like though is the closer we get to the end and we start to see what possibly could have happened with this music club, we do get some pretty creepy images with that and I will just say kind of a satanic orgy, which was, you know, kind of awkward to watch at times. Now, one thing I do also have to bring up is that Ennio Morricone did the score here. For me, though, this isn't his best work and it doesn't necessarily stand out to me. I will admit that I do hold him in a very high standard, though, since he is one of the best composers I've ever heard. The score fits for what was needed and it never takes me out of it and it does help with a creepy vibe of the movie. It's just not one of his best, in my opinion. So what I will say is that this is an interesting little giallo film that, you know, has more of the classic elements paired with kind of a new take on it with the suspended animation of our main character, Greg. It's one that I would like to watch again now that I know how everything plays out and see if I might have missed anything. But at this time, I'm coming in with a 4.5 out of 5 on the T-Put scale. And I was also pretty excited to see that next month's choice is going to be Deep Red as I've only seen this Argento classic once and that was when the Gateway Film Center nearby me was showing it on the big screen and it's been one that I've been meaning to revisit for a while, just haven't got around to it, so I appreciate that. Thanks once again, Duncan, for doing these. Can't wait to hear the episode. David Garrett Jr. signing off. And a huge thanks to David Garrett Jr. for sending in that review. Always great to hear from you, my friend. And glad you dug this movie. Yeah, second viewings, third viewings and fourth viewings of Short Night at Glassdoll will only, in my opinion, solidify it as a, a bona fide classic for sure. Now... Um, you've obviously heard the review of Deep Red and I know what you're thinking Duncan how do I get my review into you and when do you need it by it couldn't be any easier and you have a bit of time because we are you know this episode the next one isn't dropping until the, the, the later part of next month so you need to get a review of Deep Red into me no later than Friday the 20th of 
November. So Friday, 20th November, review in for Deep Red. The episode will drop the following week on Wednesday the 25th. So get your review in Friday, 20th of November, tputtscollective at gmail.com or you can send in to tputtscast.com. Um, you know, through our website, uh, you can send it podcast under the stairs at gmail.com. Send it to me by private message on Facebook if you're a, a friend. Uh, send it through Friday the 20th of November for Deep Red. The episode drops the following Wednesday. Now, we are going dark in our second last movie. This should surprise no one. Um, and it's time to deal with a little bit of Massimo Delamano, who is a fucking wonderful director who did not do many um, many jallos at all, actually. Um, he uh, started a trilogy which someone else had to finish because he sadly died before the third part was made of What Have You Done movies. So uh, the second one being a kind of crime crimey sort of movie, which is What Have You Done To Our Daughters, the first one, and the one that we'll be covering from 1972, is What Have You Done To Solange. Uh, this one boasts a phenomenal score by Ennio Morricone, has pretty phenomenal um, directing chops on it, for sure, by Delamano, but wonderful cinematography by Artristi Massasini, or Massasini, um, it's, yeah, it's absolutely great. It's also fairly bleak, so I'm giving you the warnings right now for this one. Um, and we were closing out in December with something far more kind of aloof, culty and weird in a way which makes me smile quite a bit. Our final selection is not a big, all, you know, all systems go sort of shocker sort of movie uh, is rather something a bit more quirky and fun. Um, so yeah, let's uh, let's let's gear ourselves up for this one for sure. So your deep red review must be in for Friday the twentieth of November. The movie we'll be covering after that is What Have You Done to Solange? That'll be dropping uh, the last Wednesday of November along with your reviews of Deep Red so start getting your homework done in now Memory Serves Arrow Video put this out in the UK I don't know who put it out in the States maybe available on that Arrow channel it certainly is available if you know where to look for it but it should be one that you should have in your collection for sure what have you done to Solange right there we go so uh, that brings us to an end of this episode thank you very much for submitting in your reviews for Short Night at Glassdoll always great to hear from you and uh, yeah we are almost finished two episodes left of season one before we take a short break and come back in 2020 with uh, or 2021 rather with a brand new scope of uh, of shows to do which I'm very much looking forward to I've already got planned out and the list looks nuts so yeah hopefully you will join me for that as well but before I go, remember, in Jallo Cinema, anyone could be the killer, even you. This is Duncan McLeish for Where to Begin with Jallo, and I'll speak to you next time. <laughs>